0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I want to start this morning by talking about two things that have one thing in common, and the the first thing you will totally get, um, first thing I'm talking about is the dance. This whole sermon series we talk about the song and dance of the gospel. Let's talk about dance, the dancing you do on parquet floors. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever been in a dance class. Give or take one. All right. Um, Now, raise your hand if in the course of that dance class, you were taught to dance by reading a book. Uh, Take your corner and then pivot off the back leg and then um, don't lose your center of gravity. You (laughs) You didn't learn it that way. You learned it by imitating others that you saw it modeled in front of you. And you think, well, duh, but... Friends, that's not a duh, that's like really powerful. In fact, among the sermon resources that you can find in the resource doc this week, I found a study called The Evolution of Dance. Not that YouTube video, but a study about how every culture that ever has had dance originate from within its life, everybody learned the dance by imitating others doing the dance that they saw. There's no such thing as learning dance apart from imitating it. It's the nature of dance. And all of you go, yeah, great. Whatever, all right, hold on here for a second because we're about to get really heady. There is something else that has in common with dance about imitation, and it's this thing called desire. What you want. Did you know that what you want is also learned by imitation? So for instance, you put a bunch of kids in a room, and you put a bunch of toys in that room, what happens? You just watch them naturally, you don't tell them anything, you don't instruct them in any way, you don't coach them in any way, what happens? Well, one or two kids starts to see one of those toys and really starts to dig it, and what does the rest of the group do? Oh, I'm suddenly interested in the same things that they are. Nobody told them, you will love the Lego set. They just saw other people wanting, loving, desiring the Lego set and suddenly, I wanted that. They learned to desire by imitating the desire. And look, that doesn't just happen among kids. It's shown, you put a bunch of undergrads who matriculate at Ivy League universities who have 14,000 different interests and by the time they graduate, where have they all centered? Business, law, med, finance. And it's not just because the money is there. It's because they saw one another start to want those things and they themselves wanted that stuff. Adolescents, students, adults, you were all the same. I am the same. You think you just want what you want. You just woke up someday and said, you know, I wanted that. Ha! More often than not, what you ended up wanting was because you saw somebody else wanting it first. There's a book came out last summer by a guy named Luke Burgess. He wrote a book called Wanting. I know, really descriptive. His thought all comes from mostly this French philosopher named René Girard. Ah, René, je t'aime baguette. C'est ce que c'est. Right? René Girard, French philosopher, who came up with this thing called mimetic theory. Mimetic is with a Greek word from where we get the word imitate. And as he analyzed individuals and groups and organizations and cultures and nations, he came to realize, you know how things get changed? It's when desires start to get multiplied through other people seeing other people wanting the same thing. So he says, in summary, man is the creature who does not know what to desire and he turns to others in order to make up his mind. Now, not to get real macabre on you, but do you really think that what happened in the Third Reich occurred just because of a central figure and his cabinet. It's because a desire to do what it wanted began to filtrate, filter out its way into the entirety of the culture. What some wanted for a while, others began to see and decided, I think I want that too. And they turned off everything that was inside of them that might have resisted the idea. Okay, that's so heady. Why am I going there? Because I think the most interesting word in the passage that we're going to listen to today is the word imitate. And it comes from not René Girard or Luke Burgess. It comes from the Apostle Paul. Being imitators of God. Of all the words that he could have picked, follow, love, obey. He chooses to say, you and I are to be imitators of God. What in the world? What is that all about? We want to consider it. We want to understand what does it mean to walk in love, to be an imitator of God, because I think that word has a great deal of relevance to our moment, because it it describes all of us in some way. So what does it mean to imitate him? We're going to look at that question under three headings. Do what, as what, and in light of those two things, then what? Do what, as what, then what? I took a cue from Nick Dottie in his Advent devotional about slowing down. And I purposely have slowed down on our passage through this book because I think there is stuff to be gleaned from even a few verses. Well, that's all we're going to do today three verses. And we're even going to back up into one verse that Andrew preached last week. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. Would you? It's going to go fast. Would you stand? I know. It's going to be... Ephesians 4, start at the last verse of verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. As you heard Andrew preach last week, we are now in that part of Paul's letter, which we've been listening to since September with a brief pause during Advent. We have turned a corner into the eminently practical Uh, Not that what came before wasn't important, wasn't relevant, wasn't helpful, but now it's talking about what are the implications. And if you've just joined us, we've said that the first part of Paul's letter is all about helping us to internalize the inward music of the gospel. What is the truth that has nothing to do with what we've done, but entirely what has he done? And then he turns to the second half of the book about if that's the song, what kind of dance does the song inspire and prompt? That's where we are. And so it got really practical last week, and next week it's going to get even more practical where we're going to talk about the unholy trinity of temptations. Ooh, yes. Um, but before we do, we need to do a wind-up, and, and the wind-up is here in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Memetai is the word there in the Greek. From where Rene argues gets memetic theory. What does it mean to imitate God? I can't know everything like He does. I can't act with entirety of power like He does. I'm not omniscient. I'm not omnipotent. And I can't be in two places at once. I'm not omnipresent. So in what ways can I be like Him? Well, the answer to that is in verse 2. Be imitators of God and walk in love. Rewind the tape to where we were back in chapter 4, verse 1. It's the first time maybe, I can't remember, it's the first time where Paul uses the word walk, which is just a metaphor for how you live, the way you roll, the things that are deeply true of you, and how they manifest in everything that you do. That's, what's your walk? I know, the old evangelicalese, hey, how's your walk? Oh, my walk's going well. Oh, my walk's in the ditch. Like, you talk like that, how weird Christians talk. That's walk, but it's, it's like they're borrowing it from Paul, so don't blame them. Back in chapter one, chapter four, verse one, it says, "What does it mean to follow the gospel? It is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called." That's what we said was the verse that maybe defines for us what is the dance? To walk in a way that fits, to live in a way that fits with what He has done, that lives out of the resources and the riches and the rest and the resolve that comes from what He has done for you. That's the dance. And so, here in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul is just trying to tease that out, to clarify for what it is for us to walk in a manner worthy. And today, he's going to specify that what it means to walk in a manner worthy is to walk in love. Love in all manner of ways. Love in what you do, love in what you think, love in what you say, love in what you aspire to, love in what you plan, love in how you say, I'm sorry. That silly movie, love means never having to say you're sorry. That's just wrong. It's not a, that's no love story. <laughs> and you hear that, and, and you understand that, and, and, and many of you that maybe grew up in the church or have been here for long enough, you start to glaze over going, oh, yeah, I heard that before. Love, yes. Love is central to all things. I know. And it's because you take it as a given. You think it was inevitable that love should rise to the top of any human civilization that was ever going to survive. And I'm just here to suggest to you, not because I'm a historian, but I guess I've read enough of history and I bet you've read even more, love was not inevitable to raise to the top of a civilization. The reason Paul has to talk about the centrality of love to a bunch of Gentiles is because their culture didn't automatically gravitate towards the idea of love. If you know anything about history, you know that some cultures gravitated not towards love, but towards domination. You know other cultures did not gravitate towards love, but really gravitated towards we're us, we're isolated, we're going to keep to ourselves and not intervene with anybody else. That's why, anybody ever watched Star Trek? Remember? You know, know, that, that all comes out, Gene Roddenberry, during the 60s, during the Vietnam War, and there was this little subtext that would go through all Star Trek episodes called the Prime Directive. What was the prime directive? The Federation said, if you're a member of Starfleet, you could never intervene in the natural outworkings of any other culture, right? Because what was America and other cultures doing in, in Vietnam at the time? Intervening. And that becomes a wonderful little plot tension for the entirety of the series because there were tons of moments where the Federation would get involved in the outworking of other cultures, and it's like, they're killing each other! We should intervene! Nope, can't do it. Prime directive. Oh, No! What is the loving thing to do? What's the wise thing to do? I'm telling you, it's not a given that your culture, our culture, any culture gravitates toward love. That's why Paul's got to bring it up. He's got to talk to a bunch of Gentiles who are coming out of cultures in which any number of things would rise to the fore, but it's not love. That's true of his day. That's true of any day. That's true of our day. So let me be just very clear on what we're talking about in terms of love. What does he mean? Why do we need to harp on it even now? Because there are any number of alternatives that you might choose as a person, as a family, as a culture, as a nation. When it comes to love, that is a shot across the bow of other very natural, precedented alternatives. Love instead of a life or a culture of indifference, where I isolate myself and what I do and I ignore the rest of you. It's a you know, dog-eat-dog world, good luck to you, we're going to do our thing. Love is an alternative to that. It's also an alternative to competition, the competitive world, outlast, outwit, out-survive, whatever. Everything that you do, whether it's in class or in school or in networks or in works places, you can begin to adopt the sort of competitive spirit that it's like, I really don't care about your good, I know what I'm in and I know what I'm out to get. Now, look, for those of you that are involved in sports and and athletes and things like that, of course competition is great. Competition brings out some of the best of us, but some of that stuff that we do on the field, it ends up filtering into the way we do life and then it's kind of like, I don't care about you, I will kick you if I have to win. Love's an alternative, not only of indifference, it's also an alternative To a life of competition. It's also an alternative to a life of insincerity. And in that sense, I mean, there are plenty of things that you might say that all of us would go, What a loving person. And then as soon as you turn your back, it's the exact opposite of what you say. You love in word, Oh, oh, you're so lovely, and then turn around and just stab them in the back. That's not love. Love is holistic. Love is comprehensive. Love is in word and in deed. And and the love that Paul was talking about here of walking in is an alternative to that world. And if I might add one more caveat, one more alternative. It is love as an alternative to a life of concern, but which is uncoupled from truth. And it's a clunky way of saying it. There's a lot of things that you and I might do that we think, to ourselves that what we're doing is out of love, but we are in the process of doing what we think is love is really betraying the truth. We just won't say the truth or act on the truth because we think that's for their best. The nature of love, as you've heard Paul speak of earlier, is something that is always and never untethered from truth. Those go together. They are distinct. They're inseparable. There's a timeliness to our love, There's a wisdom to our love, but it is never detached from truth. What Paul means by walking in love has those four alternatives as the alternatives. I think he's also saying by walking in love that there's also a change in terms of the scope that we might ordinarily think about how this mandate of love applies. The love of which he speaks means that we love people who are like us, and who are unlike us. Racism, sexism, classism, fundamentally, what's the problem? There's no love at it. There's no love at its center. Love requires that you love people who are like you and who are unlike you. In some ways, it also refers to love as those who are near to you and and maybe those who are further away. Can we map everything that we do in in all places and all locales in the same way that we do here? No. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, there are plenty of instances in which Paul commends some churches for being self-forgetful about themselves for the sake of those that they've never even met. For those who are struggling in ways that they have no understanding. And to demonstrate kindness and, and provision for them. That's love. Both near, far, Grover, But but those in terms of scope, you know, those two things like, yeah, nod my head, sure. Okay. But then let's let's get up in your business for a little bit. Ready? This love also means you love people who like you and those who don't. You love those who are what you would call friends and love those who like the Justice League are foes. Those who think poorly of you, those who think unkindly of you. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Seek their well-being, their goodness, even if they are seeking you harm. Look, love is frequently uphill. That's why they call it a virtue, because it's hard. And if you weren't sure about a very practical way to apply the idea of love in that terms, just back up to that verse that Andrew camped out on last week, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What's the real test of a heart of love? Is the ability even to countenance the possibility of forgiving someone who's wronged you. Uh, Forgiveness is not a flip a switch, all is well. It's, at best, maybe more like a spiral. Some days, yeah, okay, I, I don't feel as much animosity towards you, but on other days, I'd like to see you dead. It's not the same thing as trust, but it is the first step, if ever, there is going to be trust again with the anticipation and hope that repentance might repair Perhaps the hardest part of loving is the loving that inco- includes forgiving. And it's at this point, I want to I bring in a voice from culture. Now, this voice, uh, some of you may never have heard of him. Um, those of you that have, uh, there are some who think he's the best thing since spliced bread, and there are others who think he is a bane upon all existence and should be stifled as quickly as possible. But in a recent podcast interview, in a very candid, unscripted moment, this person, his name is Joe Rogan, he had something to say about forgiveness. He had something to say about forgiveness that nobody prompted him to, he just went there. And this is a man who has no loyalties to anything transcendent, no belief in God, maybe a respect for those who have faith in some ways, but here in a moment, having a conversation about any number of things, he had to kind of reflect upon How will he respond to those who feels like have mistreated him in his past? So I'm not putting him up here in any terms of advocacy or whatever. I'm just giving you a very raw, honest voice about somebody struggling with the idea of
1: forgiveness.
0: And then I promise I'll have something to say in response.
1: You know, it's this thing that people do. They other people. I mean, we love to do it when there's a complex problem. One of the best ways to not look at people as being human is to categorize them as an enemy in some way. I mean, it is like historically, those are the bad people. Let's go kill them. We're the good people. We don't kill each other. You punish people for killing each other. You reward them for killing the bad people. This is like tribal. Yeah. It's gone on forever. One of the things that... Um, people like you and I have to do is figure out you know where you draw the line. I'm not drawing that line and the reason why I'm not drawing that line is because I feel like we have to be charitable and forgiving and this is the only way we come to unity after this and I don't want to demonize people who demonized me I have nothing but love for them and I think the only way we're going to get out of this is if we forgive them because right. we are them, they are thus. I could have been one of them because I would have been like them if I didn't have the access to the kind of conversations that I've had, if I didn't have the kind of mindset that I have. I 100% could have been them. The only way that we can help each other is for people like you and people like me to forgive people. And if we don't do that, we, we just continue these ideological tribes, but I, I can't hate them because I could have been them. Forgive all these people with these wrong perspectives, because that's the only way we get out of this. And if we don't do that, then we head into further and further polarization. I have to commend Craig for editing that,
0: because the number of F-bombs that occurred within those two minutes. Oh, So there you are, caveat emptor, but look, Uh, wherever you stand about somebody like him or whatever his opinions are about any number of things, that's fine, you're entitled to them. Um, But what you heard there was a rather remarkable moral intuition that forgiveness ought to be front and center in our world. And again, this is a person who has no pre-commitments, no presuppositions about anything more. When you die, that's it. So for him to acknowledge that, and if you were listening carefully, why forgive? One, because he didn't want to be a hypocrite. He didn't want to just hate people because he knew what, whatever that they mistreated him for, it was, he, he has the same intuitions himself. He has the same issues within himself. So who is he to look down and sneer and say, forget it, I will never forgive you. But he also said, unless we pick the path of charity and forgiveness... You're going to watch the world burn, and you'll participate in its failure. I use him as a picture, a very raw and honest picture, a voice for what Paul is talking about here. But I'm also suggesting to you that his reasons for wanting to make forgiveness central to his life are not enough. I'm glad you don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't either. There's this sort of this like, I hate that. I hate saying something and then turning around going, I don't know if I'm really believing that. I hate that. And I also wouldn't want to contribute to the degradation of society. Those are great things. But friends, if you've been harmed badly enough, I think it's possible you don't care if you're a hypocrite. And I sure think it's possible you don't care if society goes down the tube. You know you've been wronged and you want them to pay. He is articulating what it means to walk in love. But he is my wonderful transition into my next point. Because Paul does not say to us, walk in love or else you'll be a hypocrite that will poison society. He doesn't say that. He's told us what to do. Now we've got to think about as what. We've done the answer. Try to answer the question, do what? Well, now let's talk about as what. Because that's... Crucial. You could be able to preach, if you've been here long enough, you could preach the sermon. You know this part. We know what to do. How do we do it? He says in verse one, be imitators of God. But how does he round out his phrase before he takes a beat? Be imitators of God as beloved children. And in verse two, walk in love. Why or how or as? As Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant sacrifice and offering to God. There is no doing without first believing something. There is no walking in love that is separated from an understanding of your identity. You can have all sorts of strong motives. And not wanting to be a hypocrite and not wanting to poison society is a strong motive, but it has a limit. And so for those of you in this room who are here, maybe out of respect, who maybe have an idea or an understanding or maybe even um, an acknowledgement of the idea of a God, but just can't go there, I'm delighted that you are here and I hope that you will feel welcome. But I hope that you will also realize that at some point, if you think forgiveness should be at the center of every society's existence, you're going to have to answer the question, why? And Paul is out to answer that question, why? Do what? Because we have been, we have been bought. Jesus' death was not just an innocent death. He was a victim, but he was more than a victim because he was also a co-conspirator in his own demise. He gave himself up. Oh yeah, he was arrested. He walked into his trap. And he did so purposefully to make you his. To forgive you and bring you to the Lord. And so when we read in Romans 5, in verses 8 and 10, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Not people that impressed him, Not people that had done anything for him. Not people who he was really excited to see them, you know, going to synagogue and giving alms to the poor and really just sort of like, you know, he's a really righteous dude. Sinners, enemies, and even so, for you, I'll die. That's the gospel. That's the song of the gospel again. That's the song that has to be, Deeply felt. The inward music of your heart if you're ever going to love. Why does Paul need to keep harping on that? The definition of conversion, in one sense, is to believe that you're beloved. That you're a beloved child because of what he has done, not because of anything that is impressive in you that you could commend yourself for. You believe that. And that is God's work in you by His Spirit to persuade you of that. But that, my friends, is only the beginning of an act of formation on His part. You believe that at the front end, but the rest of your life is you discovering just how little you believe that consistently or deeply. The rest of life is one big pilgrimage of having your heart formed. And I want to, at this moment, kind of mix it up a little bit and invite somebody forward who's involved in that work this semester, as many of you are in Darius classes, but Eleanor Beach this semester is going through a class. And I would argue that if you were to know about it, um, and if you're in it, you're already aware of what it's all about. And I think it fits very relevantly for what we're talking about right here, because if my capacity to walk in love is grounded in this idea that I am beloved child I know and you know there are a lot of other voices that contribute to my sense of identity. And her class speaks to it. So, hi Eleanor. Okay. Name of your class. It's called Inside Out. Why did you call it that?
2: Because um, any real change has to start from the inside and work its way out into our behaviors.
0: And it's my understanding that Part of the class is really beginning to think <laughs> deeply and reflect carefully upon previous experiences and relationships, and you, you develop something called a genogram. What's yes. a genogram?
2: Well, it, lots of uh, disciplines use genograms for different reasons. Um, the way we use it is to map our family, um, and other influential people in our lives and look at not just their names, but their character, their, um, their way of interacting with others and the patterns that are passed down through the family.
0: And you would argue, which I suppose many of us in our room of any certain age would probably heartily agree that A lot of those early experiences and relationships can do much to shape our sense of core identity in ways that really are actually in conflict with what we're being told here in the gospel.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, So our parents and other influential people have uh, modeled for us how to do life. And they've spoken into our lives and helped told us who we are and how we're how much we're valued and a lot of that is I mean it comes it's been impacted by the fall by sin and so there's no perfect family and um, if we want to be imitators of God then that background can actually be an obstacle and so Our background feels normal, and so we live out that normal. And unless we intentionally address, um, intentionally work on that and allow God to re-parent us and to learn um, how things are done in his family, where we are his beloved child, um... Often, nothing changes.
0: In, in yours and my email exchange this week, you, you mentioned something that's very memorable. It said that uh, Jesus may be in my heart, but Grandpa is in my bones. Um, it's true. And any number <laughs> of people for whom that would be real. And, and boy, we could tell you stories, right? Um, as Christians, we believe that the Spirit is at work in us. So it's not always that we're trying to think our way out of our head. Mm-hmm. But you would argue that reflections upon that those past relationships can help to overcome some of this static on the line as we think about our own identity.
2: Yeah, it makes us more aware and it also helps us to be intentional and it kind of sets makes a priority list of how we need God to work in our lives and so I think his spirit is involved in prioritizing that, but also in making us to want and be able to do what's different.
0: Can I pray for your group and for you? Sure. Father, I would pray that any of those who participate in this reflection would would find new hope and understanding, um, and, and more so be able to hear your voice even more prominently than the other voices in our head that we weren't even aware they were playing. Uh, So I pray for Eleanor and all those that participate and that you would uh, continue to build in us and whatever it's, whether we're part of this group or others, uh, to build in us a sense that uh, we are in fact beloved because of what you have done. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Eleanor. That's the point. I know at our conversion, we believe something about ourselves that we think Jesus has done for us, and yet I myself and you yourselves are in plenty of moments in where you think, "Huh, um, yeah, I just don't believe it right now. It feels very remote. It feels like something the pastor would say, but not something that I really get. It's crucial to our lives. There is no walking in love apart from this understanding of being beloved children. And what Eleanor is talking about is just one approach, one tool to be able to reflect and find a common sense that, in fact, we are his. Let me see if I can summarize all of this in the simplest terms and then apply it, I hope, in a very practical way. And uh, to do that, I'm going to get a little help from um, a Danish philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Oh, so thick. So this is Soren, and I wish I knew what product he used. Um, I mean, come on, that's, that's something. Danish philosopher, deeply thoughtful, some might argue deeply troubled at times, um, but, but really lamented the fact that a culture that was ostensibly grounded and founded upon Judeo-Christian faith had in his mind so drifted from it in ways that we were all just sort of kidding ourselves. And I, I think the question that he's trying to answer in these few lines that I'm going to share with you is, what does it look like to walk in love as beloved children? Like that's the question that we're all trying to get an answer for, right? If you're a Buddhist, you believe that the way of detachment is to the way of reality. If you're a nihilist, and there is no God, and there is no morality, then your way is to say, nothing matters, I'm just going to make my way. And maybe some of it will be good, but even that's a question that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. What does it mean to live and follow as a Christian? These words are, I've had a week to think about this, so I know, it's like, help me out, but listen to what he's saying. To live as a Christian, he would say, the emphasis does not fall so much on to upon what extent or how far a person succeeds in meeting or fulfilling the requirement of love. And I put of love there purposefully because I think that's what he means by requirement. Later he's going to use the word striving, and I'm going to talk about striving and requirement in terms of love. As it is upon getting an impression of the requirement in all its infinitude, so that he rightly learns to be humbled and to rely upon grace. That's thick here I go. This life in Jesus is not like Ernest Hemingway, who every day got on a scale and weighed himself and wrote down his weight in a marker in his house in Cuba. This life is not you keeping a logbook of every day, how well did I do? But of you getting an inner sense of just how Walking in love is an ideal that is so far beyond you that you are so deeply in need of his kindness and his grace even to take the next step of love. That's the first thing that Soren has for us in summarizing what Ephesians 5 is about. It's not about your logbook. It's not about you keeping score and checking boxes. It's about you coming to an inward sense of this is impossible apart from help. The second thing he says is he's going to talk about our instinct. To pare down the requirement of love in order to fulfill it better, that now it can all the more easily appear that one is earnest about wanting to fulfill the requirement, to this, Christianity in its deepest essence is opposed. In simplest terms, he's saying this. Yours and my instinct is to say to ourselves and to tell one another, God has done it all. He asks nothing of us. It's all of grace. There is no requirement upon you. There is nothing he asks. You don't even have to think about it. And Soren is humbly but firmly saying that is the actual counterpoint of what it means to be a Christian, to think that God has no interest in you. I mean, why would Paul say walk in love? He could have just said, your beloved children, he died for you, full stop. He said, walk in love we can't just sort of comfort ourselves by saying, he asks nothing of me. He does. He has a right to. Here's the punchline. No. Infinite humiliation and grace, and then a striving in love, born of gratitude. This is Christianity. It is not striving to walk the uphill climb of love in order to one day might be loved by him? No, it is a striving on the basis of you believing that you already are loved. That's what he means by gratitude. Gratitude is related to the word grace. How do you walk in love as beloved children? You recognize just how impossible the ideal is and how desperate you are for his help. And then you strive for the rest of your life in gratitude for what he's already done that you cannot lose, that you are already his and will be his forever because of what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. How do we apply it? Three quick things and we're done. How do you walk in love? In every given moment, you are going to need to develop the discipline of asking yourself this question. Is love leading? Is what you're doing in any given moment, in any conversation, in any planning, in any talking, in any, you know, whatever it might be, is love leading? Because there's all sorts of things that could be leading, and you just tell yourself, yeah, it's love. Look, harm, disparagement, cruelty in the classroom in your neighborhood at your workplace goodness gracious on social media how many times have i wanted to reply to somebody and say you are wrong and there's no love in that and like i oh, go back off back off back off you and i if we're going to walk in this way have to develop the discipline of being able to ask ourselves in any given moment is love leading and if it's not you have to repent And how does that repentance begin? By the second question that you have to ask. Because in any given moment, based upon what we just heard from Eleanor, it is quite possible that the most animating effort, the most controlling idea in you right now is not that you're beloved. It is that you're a waste, a wish you were never born, you're a fool, your life is just full of mistakes, you're nothing. Those are the kinds of things that get played that you don't even know that they're playing. And in moments like that, you know, uh, run, hide, fight, uh, stop, drop, roll, um, stop, think, pray. You have to ask yourself, is my belovedness prevailing in my head in this moment? Because if it's not, you have to stop. Now, Caveat, to believe that you're beloved is not to believe that you are never wrong. It is not to believe that you are never a scoundrel. It is not to believe that you are never able to harm someone. All of those things are true. It just means this, you are never not his. You are never cast out. And it is because of that that you find the strength to come out of the fetal position and begin to own what you have done and begin to mend what you have broken and begin to repair what you have harmed. You have to ask yourself that. And then the last question you have is this, and this is where I'll end. I'm about to uh, do something I may regret later, but um, it's kind of a Wizard of Oz moment where you come out from behind the green curtain Dallas Willard was reported to say that when it comes to sermons, the weakest tool we have in the shed is the sermon. And you think, why am I sitting here this long? <laughs> I'm going back to the word imitate. What you hear, the gospel expounded and reminded, I'm not saying it's not helpful. I'm just saying, if we're to become imitators of God, and based upon what Renee has said, look, Paul would say to Renee Girard, duh, of course you learn desire by seeing it modeled in the lives of others. Of course you do. One of the last episodes of This Is Us, it's all about Miguel. Miguel's the one that marries Rebecca after her husband Jack has died several years before. And they're getting on in years. And Rebecca begins to develop Alzheimer's. And Miguel is wondering where he's gonna find the strength to care for his wife that is rapidly deteriorating. And in that episode, the, the director is very conscious of where Miguel finds it. And we see Miguel from his earliest days until the present. And we see along the road that after his that for the for the entirety of his life, his mother, that's his mom had cared for her ailing, debilitated sister for the entirety of her life. And there are several scenes in which Dan Fogelman, the director, forces us to see Miguel, looking at his mother, care for her sister. And we are meant to see that that modeling of love between her mother and her sister is precisely the kind of love and desire that he might have for his own wife. That's why I'm saying this to you folks. If you think the mainstay of your capacity to walk in Jesus is to listen to me talk. I'm here to suggest to you that it's not. And that's why you have to ask yourself often, are you learning to imitate God by seeing it modeled among this family? Because that's power, that's potency to see it. Some of you get that? And some of you have apprehensions about moving in connectionally in relationship with one another because you've got bad experiences in that. And I understand those and I have sympathy for them. But Paul picked the word imitate and I won't apologize for it because he sure didn't. And if you and I learn to desire through imitation, then you and I will learn to walk in love by seeing it modeled in one another. But if you're never with one another, then you've just tied two hands behind your back and decided that the whole of your pilgrimage is about listening to me flap my gums. It can't be. It was never intended to be. Just like dance, the desire to walk in love is imitated, and that is learned by seeing it modeled. And that's part of the reason, if not a main reason, why God gives us each other. Sometimes to see how love fails in a community in order to see it reborn. That's it, I'm done. Let's pray. You must form our hearts so that we can walk uphill and not not do so begrudgingly but we also need something even more powerful than your command. We need something to confirm to us that your love is actually stronger than all of our resistance to it. So I ask that you would help us to believe that your love is real and that you might even confirm to us by our presence among this people for all of our frailties and sins our failures in disappointing ways, the way in which we can do harm, no doubt. Help us, Father, to believe that you're good so that we might not flinch in doing good to others, whatever the circumstances may require. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.